when you're talking about lawyering, the ability to be creative is really crucial because no situation that you're going to be presented with is going to be identical. You have to be able to think more broadly about what the issue is, what the client's needs are, what the demands are, and then identify not just one solution because rarely is there one right answer for a client or infrequently is the first answer going to be the perfect fit for the problem that they're facing. So the best way to approach those things is to identify the various options available and to present the range of possibilities that you could do. And sometimes it turns out the option that they choose is not the one you think they're going to. And it is going to be the ones that uh, we'll call it more creative than the mainline option you've identified. But a lot of times that's where being a lawyer becomes a lot of fun. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a professionally trained wetlands ecologist and lawyer whose environmental law practice is an outgrowth of his love for the natural world. He is a principal at Beverage and Diamond and co-chairs the firm's Natural Resources and Project Development Practice Group and its National Environmental Policy Act, Wetlands, and Endangered Species Act groups. This is an attorney who has a fascinating journey into the practice of law, and I can't wait for you to hear about it. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Parker Moore. Parker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Seagal. It's a real pleasure to be here. I am very excited for our listeners to hear about your journey, but before we do so, I like to ask all of our guests to give a little bit of gratitude and a slice of their life. So if you could tell me, what is your favorite thing that's happened so far today? Um, got up early and was able to make breakfast with my kids, and then my kids tell me that I burned everything, and then they recooked me breakfast, which I suppose <laughs> is something that I'm going to have to start doing more of and incorporate that into my daily routine is messing something up so that they will do it for me. I think it's a fantastic lesson. It's great parenting right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most lessons that I give my kids, I stumble into. Well, what did they make you for breakfast? I don't really care about what you burned, but what did they make you? <laughs> the thing that's a little bit embarrassing is that it was the same thing. I did it poorly. They did it well. We were making waffles and somehow my waffles were not up to expectation, but theirs were delicious. So the <laughs> students become the teachers. <laughs> always, always. I just never thought it would happen this quickly. How old are your kids? They're almost 12 and eight. I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old, and I can't even imagine what 12 and eight looks like yet, but that's very, <laughs> it's a very exciting prospect. It's very similar, just a little bit taller. I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I really want to first and foremost talk about your journey a little bit before you became a lawyer. Did you always want to be a lawyer or where did this outgrowth of love for the natural world start to combine with the law? So, so we'll have to go way back for that one. Um, the short answer is no, I never had any intention of being a lawyer. In fact, I'd always said, no, I would never be a lawyer. That was something that I believed firmly until I became one. It really happened almost by accident. I have always loved being outside. My family was the type of family that would go camping every weekend in the summer, We'd go fishing with my parents and Boy Scouts out hiking, backpacking. And 
So it was just natural when I went to undergrad that I would focus my studies there. It's just what I was naturally drawn to. I majored in natural resources, which was a combination of forestry and geology, because a huge component of that was having outdoor labs and going and looking at the landscape and learning about how geological formations are made and why the forest responds in a certain way. After graduating undergrad, I ended up as a wetlands ecologist working for an environmental consulting firm. And so it was just more of the same. I was out tromping around the woods with a machete over my shoulder, cutting line to identify wetlands and see if there was threatened or endangered species habitat. And if so, then looking for the species, um, helping people get their permits and get authorizations from the Army Corps of Engineers, from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And one of the most incredible work experiences I've ever had was riding around the Potomac River in a Zodiac looking at, at bald eagles flying up and down and monitoring their nests and uh, when they were laying eggs and seeing uh, what the encroachment was of nearby development and uh, whether that was having any effect on the nesting behavior. In short, it was just a remarkable job and loved every minute of it. But I was living in Northern Virginia, which is where the job was, and it was tough to make ends meet on an entry-level salary. And so I started talking with management of the company and they said, um, yeah, we can give you a promotion if you do more mitigation design work, like basically, and rather than going out and, and identifying the impacts, you help people find solutions to offset the impacts that their activities are going to have. But to do that, you need a master's degree. I said, okay, no sweat. I can do that. So started looking at the various master's programs in that area. I spoke with the people at Georgetown and GW and American and Catholic, George Mason, basically every school in Northern Virginia, DC area. And without exception, the directors of the programs that I spoke with said, yeah, the program that we have would be a great fit for that. But if you're going to do that, why don't you go get a JD instead? And there's a program in Vermont at Vermont Law School that offers a joint degree with a JD and then a master's study in environmental law that will give you the best of both worlds. So that at some point in the future, you decide that maybe you don't want to be out walking around the woods and getting poison ivy every summer and pulling ticks <laughs> off and running away from yellow jackets. Then you might have an option for doing something that's more behind a desk. I'd never been to Vermont and it was a great outdoor paradise. Went to Vermont Law School and fell in love with it. And within two weeks, I knew immediately that the legal side of this sort of work was where I wanted to be. But I still didn't want to be a lawyer as I thought of lawyers. I didn't want to be in a private practice. So <laughs> I had a job lined up um, at uh, the White House Council on Environmental Quality and was going to be working at the government agency and doing reviews of projects and the environmental analyses that were being done under the National Environmental Policy Act. Unfortunately, for a number of reasons, there was a hiring freeze that was put into place doing a congressional investigation of that agency. And my job evaporated before I'd even started. And so three weeks before the bar exam, I was sitting there trying to focus on getting my bar license, but also realizing that I had no job to apply it to. And the person whom I was going to be working with at the agency said, you know, You've always told me that uh, you don't want to be in private practice, but you need to go look at this firm. It's an environmental firm. That's all they do. And I think it would be something that would be right up your alley. It's not like a traditional law firm as you would think about it. 
Who was the person that was giving you this advice? His name was Horst Gritschmill. He was the one that really oversaw the entire program. He was friends with the hiring partner at this firm and happened to know that they needed to fill an entry-level spot that actually was open because one of my law school classmates had decided to stay in Vermont and work as an adjunct professor. So I went in, interviewed, fell absolutely in love with the firm, with the practice, and joined six weeks later, and I've been there now for 18 years. What a great story. I have a few questions that popped out to me as you were telling it. So the first one was at the very beginning, you said you never wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, you said, I will never be a lawyer. Why was that? My family always had, I don't know, notions about what lawyers are and what lawyers aren't. And I, I suppose I probably adopted those since I was spending so much time sitting around a campfire with them. And um hearing uh, lawyer jokes all the time and realizing that, yeah, I'm not going to be someone in a courtroom. I want to be someone that's out there in the field and never thought that I would be someone sitting behind a desk you know, writing briefs or memos or doing legal research. It was more about being outside and trying to figure out the physical world. And then you go to Vermont Law School and you say about two weeks in, you knew immediately that you wanted to be part of the legal side. What about it specifically stood out to you? It was the way of looking at problems and trying to identify different solutions that are available. Realizing that there was not a single right answer, that it's not like math. It is something where you can state your position and you can adopt the support for it and you can be right at the same time that someone else is right with a completely different answer. That's one of the things that is kind of the double-edged sword about law school is that they hammer into the students over and over again. If you have precedent for something that then you have your answer and that's the way you solve problems. Um, but at the same time, they do a decent job of explaining or teaching law students to think like a lawyer, which is you don't have to be wedded to the exact precedent that you're dealing with. You can extend precedent by analogy. But still, I think that one of the things that you see a lot with law students as they're first coming out of school is, is that they feel kind of shackled to the precedent mantra and saying that if we have something and there's no precedent for it, then that can't be the answer. Um, but I think that as people start to really develop a level of comfort in their practice, they can extend beyond that and realize that precedent isn't the end all be all a legal practice. And that while it is a solution, it's an answer, it's not the only answer. And it really offers an opportunity uh, for folks to expand their thinking about things and expand the way that law is implemented and really kind of change the thinking of you know, established principles that are used in any arena of the legal practice. I think it's very important at the very beginning of your legal career to identify why precedent is important and how it plays into the evolution of law, but also to remind yourself that as our world changes, laws can change and that you do have power to be able to be a part of that change. It also, which I think a lot of people don't realize about lawyers, is there's a big creative side to that, the ability to be creative in how you implement those things. So, Yeah, it's a necessity. Without creativity and lawyering, you would be stuck in a situation where the law is inflexible. It's not living. It doesn't develop over time. So realizing that precedent is really just a single answer or a single solution is the wrong way of looking at it because it's rarely the only solution. 
Talk to me about this concept of creative lawyering. What does that mean to you? It's something that I, I think is extremely important for anyone to be comfortable in whatever job that they're doing, whether it's lawyering, whether it's accounting, although I'm not sure how creative, <laughs> being creative in, in accounting work works for some folks. I feel really bad for accountants. I'm sure that they're sitting there being like, hey, we could be creative too. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I said it, I was like, I don't know about creative accounting. I think I've seen news <laughs> stories about where that ends up. Yeah, creative accounting, creative uh, pharmacy practice, those are probably bad ideas. Um, but when you're talking about things like lawyering, the ability to be creative is really, it, it's crucial because Number one, no situation that you're going to be presented with is going to be identical. You have to be able to think more broadly about what the issue is, what the client's needs are, what the demands are, whether it's a scheduling issue, whether it's a funding issue, whether it's a policy issue, and then identify not just one solution, because rarely is there going to be one right answer for a client or infrequently is the first answer going to be the right answer or the perfect fit for the problem that they're facing. And so in my opinion, the best way to approach those things is to identify the various options that are available and to present them with the range of possibilities that you could do. And of course, there's going to be likelihood of success differences associated with each one of those, but presenting those different options to them will allow them to say, you know, really, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's our objective? And which of these options is going to best meet our needs? And sometimes it turns out that the option that they choose is, is not the one you think they're going to. And it is going to be one of the ones that uh, we'll call it more creative than uh, you know, the mainline option that you've identified. Um, but a lot of times that's where being a lawyer becomes a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. So you get to Beverage and Diamond. You're like, I fell in love with this firm. I want to know about what it looks like to fall in love with a law firm. Why did you fall in love with, with Beverage and Diamond? What was it about them? One of the reasons that I really fell in love with the firm where I am is that they encouraged me to develop a practice area, even though it was something that we did not specifically have at that time. I mentioned um, I was a, a wetlands ecologist. I knew I wanted to do wetlands work. And it just so happened that coincided with me starting at the firm and the Supreme Court taking up one of the most significant wetlands cases in the history of the Clean Water Act. At the time, the firm where I joined, even though we were, and still are, you know, one of the largest environmental law firms, did not have a dedicated wetlands practice because that practice group moved to another firm six months before I joined. And so came in and said, look, this uh, Supreme Court just uh, granted cert in this generational wetlands case, and we have to be involved in this. We have to be writing an amicus brief that was really going to be something that will be considered by the justices and hopefully shape the face of wetlands regulation going forward. The firm said, all right, let's do it. The mentors whom I've been working with said, all right, you come up with the strategy and the game plan and we'll help you make the contacts and we give, give them a pitch and cross our fingers and see if they bite. And they did. It resulted in us writing a brief that I'm still proud of 18 years later for a group of real estate interests that was cited approvingly by Justice Scalia in the plurality decision that he issued. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court split on its decision in a 414 way, which makes it even more chaotic than it was prior to the decision. But it was still really cool. And it showed me that the firm will support me and anyone else that wants to develop their practice and orient that practice around the things that they're most interested in. Because if you have that passion, that's what allows you to connect with the clients, allows you to connect with 
regulators and with the opposing parties and to speak about those issues. What a wonderful experience to have, especially when you first enter a law firm, to be able to do something like that and to be able to submit to the Supreme Court on an issue that you're so passionate about. But in addition to that, when we talk about the representation of clients and the representation of these matters as you move forward, how much of this underlying experience in the environment beyond just the legal ramifications of it, how much does that help you in these cases? I would say that I lean on that as much as I lean on my legal training. It really is a a fundamental aspect of, of my legal practice. But I mentioned that the wetlands and endangered species practice at my firm had moved on shortly before my arrival to another firm. So I came in and the firm management really supported me in trying to reestablish that practice from day one. And one of the things that I started noting as was going out and doing marketing to the potential clients is a lot of the things that were being done and the strategies that they were implementing were focused on, let's get our permits and let's build our projects. And a lot of times the reason that I knew about these things being done is because they ended up in the courts. And the reason they ended up in the courts, because there was some aspect of the permits and the authorizations that the agencies were issuing that were vulnerable to legal challenge. And a lot of times that resulted in the permits being overturned, the environmental documents being overturned and projects being slowed down and then the price tags of those projects ballooning. So the perspective that I started sharing during the pitches that I was doing to clients and when I'd go out and spend time talking to people at conferences or going out to lunch was why don't we incorporate early project siting and planning into the process rather than designing the project first, let's focus on the siting of the project in a way that minimizes the impacts to the natural resources, whether it's species or wetlands or historic resources, tribal resources, national forests, um, minimize the nexus that you have with any sort of trigger or a, a federal regulatory program, and you minimize the risk of the project. It may take you a little bit longer upfront to do that, but in the long term, you're reducing the risk that you're facing. Um, your costs are going to be more certain. Your schedule is going to be more certain. And by the way, it's also a great story that you're doing what you can as a good corporate citizen to be mindful of the environment. And that started to resonate with folks. So that's where my practice really started to take off at that point and it has grown ever since. I love that on so many levels. And just for clarity for our listeners, these are clients who are looking to develop in areas that could potentially have an impact on the environments that they're building on. Um, talking about large scale infrastructure. I mean, anything from highway projects for state departments of transportation, to multi-state or interstate pipeline projects, to massive industrial projects, commercial residential development projects that are really leading projects for the particular companies that are the proponents of them. So when you're talking about large-scale projects like that, and if you're not evaluating upfront the siting opportunities that they have that could minimize impacts, then you're almost guaranteed to hit them. I love this story about you coming in after a practice group just left, getting the buy-in to build this up again, and then going out there and really doing the work to build it. And I think that 
up until this point, I kind of always had in my head, what does it look like to build a practice area from the ground up in a firm? But I think that you really provided a more detailed understanding of what that looks like, especially as it relates to, okay, who are these clients? How do I identify who these clients are? And really going out there, whether it was conferences, looking at actual filed court cases, talking to them, understanding their needs, but also that you still come from a place where you want to help the client while also doing the right thing because you come from this experience of loving nature, wanting to preserve things. And so it's like this really beautiful balance that you bring to your clients. Any lawyer who enjoys their practice is bringing that same sort of balance. People get involved in law because they want to help people find solutions to their problems. And then they can speak from their own background, their own standpoint, their own perspective in ways to do that. Because inevitably, you're going to be drawing on your own experiences whenever you're advising someone on whatever the issue is, whatever the question is. No one's able to divorce themselves from what they hold as important and giving advice on anything, even if you're looking to the law as the framework for that advice. What else, if anything, could help our listeners on building a practice group from the ground up? What were some other things that you were doing? Let's be honest. There's, there's a lot of luck in all of legal practice and, and in developing a practice. But some of it comes from making your own luck and recognizing opportunities when they appear and being able to look around the corner and understanding the area in which you want to build the practice so that when those opportunities start to appear, you recognize them and say, all right, this is the thing that's going to be most impactful to people. This is the thing that is going to become a problem at five years down the line, 10 years down the line. I'd mentioned earlier that I was giving pitches. What I actually was doing is going out and talking with people. I wasn't going out with an elevator speech and saying, here's the reason you need to hire me. What I was going out is talking with them and saying, so what sort of issues are you guys looking at? What's keeping you up at night? And then doubling down on that and said, well, I've got one more thing that's going to keep you up at night, but here's how you get ahead of it. So just being a source of information so that they can be aware of what is coming and then not only flagging for them something that's going to cause them problems in the, the coming years, but give them solutions that they can adopt before they become problems. And found that that was something that's just really helpful for people and it's something that the potential clients have almost universally been receptive to. Anyone who's, who understands that, yes, I can take a little bit more time at the beginning to actually help me save time in the future. I mean, that's what you want in any project that you really tackle, but especially at no. this magnitude. Do you think that before law school, when you were working with that consulting company who said, hey, you know, we'd really appreciate you getting a master's to focus more on mitigation. Do you think that somehow informed like kind of this identifying of this need later on? I think it did. I also think another component of it was seeing the types of projects that were being developed in the area where I was doing that work. It was the late 90s and the area where I was focusing the field work where I was doing was in Northern Virginia over by Dulles Airport. And the entire corridor from Dulles over towards Leesburg, Virginia was largely farm fields. And in the several years that I was with that, saw it go from farm fields to strip malls, to large residential developments with very big houses on very small lots and seeing the impact it was having on the traffic and on the people that were living there and on the people who had been there before the development really is, I think, what started the idea in my mind, or at least in the back of my mind. So yeah, I think it is something. I'm surprised that 
not more law firms were doing that or not more clients were thinking about that. Why do you think that is? I can't say that no law firms were thinking about it. Um, and I'm, I'm certain that others were. But what I could say is that when you're talking project development, you're talking about have to meet schedule, have to meet budget. So essentially what was known to them was permitting timelines. We know how much it costs to get a permit. We know how long it takes to get a permit. And so what wasn't being accounted for is what happens when your permit's vacated? Yes, you got your permit, but if you can't build your projects, then your end goal hasn't been reached yet. I think it was separating out the actual getting the authorization from completing the project. Yeah. Believe it or not, we're going to start getting into the rapid fire questions. So Parker, what does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law means setting an example for not only your colleagues, but your clients and your competitors. Showing anyone um, who's willing willing to listen that there are a a number of ways to reach the same goal and that no single answer is necessarily the right one. What is something that people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? (laughs) Um, Anytime I go to a a cocktail party, anytime I go to a wedding, anytime I meet new people and they ask the inevitable question, you know, what do you do? And I say, I'm an environmental lawyer. And they say, good guys or bad guys. And just like with the law itself, there's no right or wrong answer. So what I try to explain to people is that there are no good guys or bad guys when it comes to environmental law or law in general. The way that you solve or help a client solve their problems is what leads to good results or bad results. What is a piece of practical advice for our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law who are looking to follow your lead. (laughs) Keep your ears open and keep your eyes open. You never know when an opportunity is going to present itself to really have an impact on the practice or on individual clients or on your colleagues and really allow you to help them achieve what they want to do. Who was someone who really shaped your journey in life? My grandmother. My grandmother is, of anyone in my family, was probably the biggest proponent of the outdoors. She was the one who taught me how to set up a tent. I caught my first fish with her. And she's also happened to be one of the smartest people I ever met. So yeah, she was probably one of the biggest early drivers of where I am now. That's amazing. What do you do for self-care? Self-care? What do you do for yourself to ensure that you're mentally healthy and that you're happy? And Yeah. So I, I happen to live in one of the most beautiful areas of the country, as far as I'm concerned, in coastal South Carolina. So any chance I get, I'm outside with my family. We go saltwater fishing pretty much every weekend. We go camping all the time to spend time together without being plugged in and really just take time to enjoy things that don't involve work. I think that's the easiest thing to do, but it's the hardest thing to set time aside for. Sometimes the simplest answers are not always the easiest answers. I think it's wonderful that you try to do that every weekend, because in my opinion, there's nothing better than being outside and also being with family and disconnecting, like you said, and being present with them. Yeah. Now, if there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? If there's one thing I I would change about it, it's the formality of it, the Questions that lawyers are asked to answer are extremely important. There's a feel that when you're in a law firm environment, and I'm not speaking necessarily about my law firm, but that you can't have fun with your job. Um, And 
you can have fun and do excellent work at the same time. In fact, I think you do better work when you are having fun. Um, so I think that everyone needs to loosen up a little bit. I agree. There is definitely a place where being playful and light while still being good at what you do can actually be a better way of working, right? Yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. If someone wanted to connect with you, what is the best way that they can do so? A law firm bio is available at Beverage and Diamond under people. Get me on LinkedIn, Twitter, anything that works. Well, thank you so much, Parker. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful weekend with your kids and your family. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.